Well, good morning, church. Who is Jesus? This is an important question that will both shape your life now and more importantly, determine your life to come. So, so who exactly is Jesus? Who was Jesus? Who is Jesus Christ? Was, was he a wise teacher who other people have wrongly called Lord, like a kind of guru, as it were? And frankly, this is what many secular Americans today think. Uh, this is what a lot of Hindus and, and Buddhists around the world think about Jesus, that he was simply a wise teacher with great wisdom, but who did not truly rise from the dead uh, and who was not truly the divine one sent from God. Was Jesus the greatest prophet whom some of his followers blasphemously called the, the, the son of God? This is, of course, what our Muslim friends think. They would say he's the greatest of prophets, but absolutely not the Son of God, for that's blasphemy for God to have a son. How could God engage with a woman to have a son? Was Jesus a great social revolutionary who stood up for the little guy and inspired the, the masses to burn the system down? Well, this is the teaching of the social gospel and, and Marxists who are, are, are glad to look to Jesus as their inspiration and have been influential in, in nations around the world. What was Jesus an imposter who falsely claimed to be the promised Jewish Messiah? Years ago, I, I visited Jerusalem and I met some Hasidic Jews who believed that very thing, that Jesus was an imposter. In fact, that's what they call him, the imposter. Or was Jesus truly God become human, as, as he said? Now, let's make no mistake, the idea of God becoming human is a mind-blowing thought. How, how could God become, really become a human and, as humans do, need things? How is that possible, logically? How can God learn? How can infinite add knowledge? Because the Bible says he, he learned as a, as a boy. How can God die? This is a question that, that really um, is a problem for many thinking Muslims. And I've been asked that question. How, how do you if you really believe that Jesus is the Son of God and he died on a cross, not only why would God allow his son or a great prophet to die on the cross. But how can God himself die? Well, I'm not gonna answer all these questions for you this morning, but I'm gonna tell you this. I believe that Jesus Christ is, as he said, the very son of God. And, and that is a key message that we see in the book of John. Uh, like, a, like a diamond, and if you shine light on a diamond, it, it, it radiates, right? It's like a prism, right, of light. Each of the, each of the gospel writers 
um, uh, 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 unpack all, fa- all kinds of facets of, of Christ, but each writer has a, has, has a specific angle or a specific agenda, something that they want their audience to understand about Jesus. And so when we studied Matthew a few years ago, we saw kingship as a, as a recurring theme. Matthew wanted us to understand that Christ is the king of kings, right? And, and Mark talks about the son of man, servanthood. Jesus was the son of man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And, and in Luke, we see Jesus' manhood. The, 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 the word of God, God the Son really became human. And Luke wants us to understand this, that, that he was really the son of man. He was, he, he was truly a human being, not just a, a, some kind of a phantom. Okay, he, 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 he walked, and we walk in his steps. He walked as a real human and therefore truly understands what it's like to be human. But with John, John wants us to clearly understand the Godhood of Jesus Christ. Kent Hughes writes, John is unique in his powerful presentation of Jesus as the great creator God of the universe His massive vision of Christ has been used countless times to open the eyes of unbelievers to who Jesus is and the way of redemption. So perhaps you're with us this morning and you are not sure in your heart who Jesus really is. Well, I want to encourage you to read the book of John. I'm excited as we we study this book and I anticipate for the next year or so, we'll be walking through the book of John together. And, and so that's, that's 2023, that's our plan. And we get to start looking at the first half of the first chapter of this Advent season, which is such a great, um, uh, powerful, poetic text that just unpacks who Jesus is and his nature and his mission. And then we're going to learn all about the story of Jesus this next year. And, and uh, there's so much that he has to teach us in this book in this gospel of John. So I would invite you to come back or tune in online uh, and, and follow along with us. But more importantly, just read it. Read the book of John and ask God, it, show me Jesus into my heart, who he really is. But maybe you, you are sure that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. Um, maybe you've been a Christian for many years. And this gospel truth the deity of Christ has become old hat to you. It's, it's just something you, you learned in like a catechism or you learned in Awana and you say, oh yeah, Jesus is God, no big deal. Let me tell you something, that's a big deal. It's a mind-blowing deal. And, and sometimes we take profound truths for granted. So I hope even this morning, your, your soul and your mind will, will say, whoa. I, I hope you will believe what you believe this morning, that Jesus Christ is God become flesh. That is a unbelievably crazy idea, folks, but it's the truth that God has revealed to us, that God, that the fact that God would become flesh, care enough about us to become one of us, to show us the way, to, to be the Savior, because no human could, could offer his life as a, as a sacrifice for us, because no human is, is perfect. We have all sinned and fallen short. And so, God the Son took on a mission to become human, fully human. Metaphysically, that's incredible 
to believe. Spiritually, it's incredible to believe. The, the fact that he would care for us that much is a profound, deep truth that I hope draws your soul closer to the Lord of the universe. It's not a, a low thought. It's a high thought of God. And so listen again to these words as the Holy Spirit inspired John. I'm sure he put a lot of thought in how do I encapsulate these truths that I've seen, that I've that I've lived, that I've, that I've witnessed for three years, and now that I'm, I'm, I'm you know, uh, all kinds of things are happening as, 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 as John sits down to pen this gospel. Um, all kinds of things are happening in the Greco-Roman world as the gospel of Jesus Christ is penetrating and, and moving and people are getting persecuted and people are coming to believe, and, and John has this great responsibility to write his gospel. As he weighs his words, listen again to these three verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So this morning, we're just going to walk through those three verses, and our sermon has three points, and each point corresponds with a verse. So point number one is that Jesus was and is God. Verse 1, 17 words in the English language with a lot of profound truth packed in these 17 words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so I see three clauses in this sentence, so let's take them clause by clause, and examine them as we, as we look at this audacious statement, okay? Uh, imagine hearing this for the very first time, that this man, Jesus, was God become human. So let's think about that as we look at each of these, each of these clauses. In the beginning was the Word. So when we, we read this first prepositional phrase, in the beginning, what do you think of? Genesis 1.1, the, the very beginning of the Bible. What does Genesis 1.1 say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, everything, the cosmos, all things. And so John very clearly connects this to Genesis 1.1 in our minds. In the beginning, at, when everything started as, as we can trace the concept of time, in the beginning, the word was there. Now, grammatically, the, the verb translated was here in the Greek, imperfect tense, which denotes continuous action in the past. So, in other words, what it, if we're going to translate this more um, directly or more literally, it would be, Jesus was always continuing in the past. So John is making it clear that there was never a time that Jesus Christ did not exist. Not as a man, but as God the Son. He is what we call pre-existent. So this means that as far back in time as you can imagine, and before that, Jesus was existing and living. He was alive. From eternity past. And we can't even fathom what that means because 
we're locked into kind of a time-spatial dimension and category of thinking. So I, I can't imagine, really, eternity. I can look at infinity, I can, I can think about it, but you know, nobody can count that high, obviously. You just can't imagine perpetuality forever in either direction, future or past. But Christ was living for eternity past. So kids, we, we think of Christmas as Jesus' birthday, and we should, all right? Uh, and this is a time to celebrate the birth of Jesus, but Jesus is not just 2,000 years old, okay? He existed before the universe existed, and he existed before time as we know it began. And that's what Jesus said. In John chapter 17, verse 5, he said, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus himself claimed to have been alive before the creation of the world. Now we read, in the beginning was the word. Now now John carefully chose his words here. And so there's a a Greek term that many of you know. Some of you are involved in a homeschool co-op by its name. Logos, right? Or some would say logos, but logos. In the beginning was the logos. Now, this is a a Greek word that was really packed with meaning, and John here uses that as a synonym for Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the logos. Now, why did he choose this word, right? Instead of just saying, in the beginning was the Christ, or which is a title, not his last name, right? Um, Or in the beginning was Jesus, or God the Son. Well, you know, there's actually only one other place in the Bible where Jesus is called the Word of God. Normally, when we think of the Word of God, we think of the Bible, right? God's revelation to us, or his spoken word. But there's one other place in the Bible where Jesus is called the Logos, and it was also written by John, by the way, and it's when we see Jesus on a triumphant white horse, depicted in the, in the book of Revelation, ready to come back and, and, and ready to conquer, to come back as, as Christ triumphant. And in Revelation 19, 13, we, we see, and the whole, the whole, there's a whole paragraph where we see an amazing description of, of this rider on the, white, on the white horse. But in verse 13, it says, the name by which he is called is the word of God. So, so what, did, what did that word logos mean to the original reader? Well, it depends. If, if, if you were a Greek or if you were a, a Jew, a Hebrew, okay? The Greeks... Uh, particularly that the Stoics had a, had, had, were philosophers who had this concept of, of the logos was this rational principle, it was almost like, a, a, like wisdom, that was behind the creation or behind the, the order, the pattern by which the cosmos was, was ordered. Okay? And, and so it, it, it like symbolized wisdom, and in Greek thought, according to the Greek philosopher Philo, it had actually come to be equated with God, but almost like an impersonal God, like a force almost, okay, in the Greek mind. But it was supreme wisdom. That, that, that was kind of the, the idea of logos to a pagan Greek. Now, we know that to the Jew, the, the concept of the word or the word of God, when, when a Jew thought of that, they thought of power, the power of God, the power of God's spoken word. 
in both creation and redemption. So let's think about creation for a moment. You think about how it all started. How, how did God create the, the universe? How did he create the world and, and all that we see and know? Well, in Genesis we read, and God said, Genesis 1-3, let there be light. Boom! And there was light. It came through the word of his power. In, in Psalm 33, 6, we read, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. So God spoke creation into existence, not from elemental um, uh, um, particles or uh, fluids out there that were floating around forever. No, ex nihilo, from nothing. God spoke and it was, he created. From, everything comes from the mind of God. That, that's why, you know, the evolutionists today will look at, at this whole, quote, unquote, evolutionary tree of life, right? And they, there's an assumption underneath it all that, that common kind means common descent, okay? Does that make sense? So this, and it's totally an assumption you make. So if, you know, you, uh, so a, a chimpanzee has, you know, 80, whatever, 89% of the gamma globulin of a, of a homo sapien, therefore, you know, the humans must be later versions of chimpanzees, right? And 49% of a salamander, so we'll put a salamander over here, okay? It's an assumption that, that universal uh, or common, co- common uh, uh, causes or common elements point back to a universal descent. What we see in Scripture is it points to, a, to one mind, right? An amazing mind that spoke and it, and it was. A, a common creator, it points to, according to the Bible. And that makes more sense to me anyway. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. So when, when the Jew thought of the word of God, he thought of power of creation, but also power of salvation and, and redemption. Psalm 107, 19 through 20 says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. So God saved his people by the power of his word in the Old Testament. And it's interesting, when we read the book of John, we we see how John carefully crafts and and makes this point and demonstrates the, the creative, redemptive work of Jesus in his ministry. So that's a theme throughout John's gospel. So when, when you read the story of, of Jesus turning the wine to, or sorry, the water into wine at Cana, think about that for a moment. That was actually a, a miracle demonstrating his creative power, right? Um, his creative power. It was, a, it was a miracle of creation because it was actually changing elements chemically. Like no human can do that, right? When, when Jesus healed the man born blind, Think about that. That was, it was a healing, but it was a miracle of creation. It was a recreation, a man born blind. The, the, the actual anatomy of his eyes had to change. Jesus did that through the word of his power. And that was a picture not only of his creative power, but his redeeming power. We think about later in John chapter 20, verse 22, how, how Jesus breathed his spirit into his disciples. We see his his creative and his redeeming power. 
So by carefully choosing the word logos, John is showing the Greeks that Jesus is the wisdom of God incarnate. In other words, the wisdom of God become human or flesh. And to the Jews, John is claiming that Jesus is the creator redeemer that they've been reading about in the Old Testament, that they've been waiting on to to come and to save them. And so we read, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. The word was with God. A literal translation here would be the word was continuously toward God. Now Jesus was separate from God the Father in his personal identity and yet always had been fully God. And so here we see the intimacy within the Holy Trinity. And we're going to come back and explore that a little bit more in a moment. And the Word was with God. Now Jesus is equal with God in nature and in in essence. And he's been that way from eternity past. Now, some of you may have had some people come and knock at your door who had a Bible that we call the New World Translation, and these folks are called Jehovah's Witnesses, okay? And they may have argued with you, if you've ever gotten a discussion with them, uh, that in John 1, 1, our Bible makes a mistake. And so it actually should say A before God. In other words, Jesus or the word was a God, which would imply that he was a heavenly being, but not fully equal with God the Father. Now, my son, Tim, grew up in England, and as a young boy, well, he was in Afghanistan when he was really little, but he, he started school in England, and so when he was a young boy, he had kind of a tough London accent, tough South London accent, okay? And, and he used to love the word rubbish. He would say, rubbish, that's rubbish, rubbish weather, well, you know what? That argument is rubbish that you should put an A here before God. And I'm not going to try right now to, to try to get into a, a kind of a Greek uh, grammatical lesson. I might lose some of you on it, getting into Colwell's rule and all that. But let me just quote Wayne Grudem, a, a respected systematic theologian, who says, re- regarding the Jehovah's Witness translation, that their interpretation has been followed by no recognized Greek scholar anywhere. Okay, in fact, they actually have come out and acknowledged what's called Colwell's rule that, that it's, it's kind of strange, but they've come out and acknowledged that their translation isn't right, but they still, they still grammatically, but they, they still hang on to it because of their theology, which is false. Wanting to take, uh, wanting to deny the Trinity, the full deity of Christ. John MacArthur writes, confusion about the deity of Christ is inexcusable Because the biblical teaching regarding it is clear and unmistakable. Jesus Christ is the pre-existent word who enjoys full face-to-face communion and divine life with the Father and is himself God. Now, John 1.1 is a great place to go with folks who are struggling with, does the Bible really teach that Jesus is God himself? Because it says the word was God. Very, very clear, right? Um, But you know what, this is not the only text in the Bible that clearly teaches Christ's deity. We can go back in the Old Testament and and read this great prophecy of the coming Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, which says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his 
shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It is blasphemy to call a man God, Mighty God, unless he is. Jesus himself clearly claimed to be God himself. Now, in many, many places, many texts, he talked about the Son of Man, which, was a, which is an Old Testament um, 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 uh, revelation or title for actual, actual deity, a coming, uh, a coming manifestation of God. But Jesus, in many places, Jesus acknowledged being the Son of God. I remember um, Peter's, um, we remember Peter's um, acknowledgement, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus blessed Peter. But I think one of the most clear references that Jesus made himself to deity was in John chapter 8, verse 58, where Jesus said to the Jews, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, in, in Greek, ego I me, which is like I am, emphasized, I am. Well, where had they heard those words before? Where have we heard those words before? Well, in Exodus chapter 3, when God revealed himself to Moses, the prophet Moses at the burning bush, and, and Moses said, what is your name? Who shall I tell Pharaoh sent, that sent me? And God said, I am who I am. And that's where the, the name Yahweh, the very name of God, came from. So Jesus said, before Abraham was, or I'm so, uh, he says, I, I am. And, and so the, the, it was clear here, and, and, and we see that the, the Jews responded, the unbelieving Jews picked up stones to throw at him. Now thankfully, his disciples, um, who were Jews, believed him. But those who, who, who didn't believe him believed this man is blaspheming because he is clearly claiming to be the God that we have followed for centuries, the God who revealed himself to Moses, and they picked up stones to, to kill him. So Jesus claimed to be God, and what that does is for the honest reader who, who believes that the Bible is, is accurate, it leaves us with only three choices about him. Either Jesus was a liar, someone who claimed to be God who was not, or he was a nutcase, someone who thought he was God, and was not, or he truly is God. And there's really no room for this idea of a wise teacher or a prophet who is less than God, if you believe, if you believe in the Bible. Now, not only did Jesus call himself God, others called him God. John chapter 20, 28 through 31, Thomas, when he saw Jesus after he rose from the dead, you remember Thomas had doubted that Christ had risen from the dead. He hadn't been in the room. And when Jesus appeared to Thomas, Thomas's response was, my Lord and my God. And, and Jesus did not rebuke Thomas for blasphemy. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Boom. I, I hope that you will read this Gospel of John over and over and over, and that indeed all of you in this room will have life 
by believing in his name. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, some, uh, a text we studied about a year ago, says re- regarding Christ, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The, the only possible exact imprint of the nature of God is God, God the Son. Romans chapter 9, verse 5 says, talking about the Jews, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever, amen. Titus 2.13 says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.9 says, for in him, that's Jesus, that Christ is the object of this, of, of this, this sentence here. He says, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So I've printed these verses out for you in your listening guide. Um, in the event you have questions about the deity of Christ, or if you're talking with people who do, uh, go back and, and read these verses in their context and, and share them. But the Bible is very, very clear that Jesus Christ is indeed God. And that's point one. Well, point two is Jesus was and is with God. So Jesus was and is God in both essence and character. One writer put it this way, everything that can be said about God can be said about Jesus Christ. But Jesus was also with God. We see verse two, he was in the beginning with God. God. Now if that confuses you, uh, it confuses me too. But here we see in seed form the doctrine of the Trinity. And, and so this is a good place to, to look to some church creeds to, to explain exactly what we mean and what we don't mean. Okay, and so there was a council called the Council of Nicaea back in 325 AD, which is in, Nicaea is in modern day Iznik, Turkey. And this council convened to combat some heresies that were, that were being developed and spreading around in the church about Christ. And because people couldn't figure out how Jesus could be truly human and truly God, and if we stop and think about it, understand that, that the doctrine of Trinity, the Trinity is that there is one God who lives in three persons, who has dwelt eternally in three persons, one nature, but three persons or personalities. Okay, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then when you think about Jesus, and there's plenty of mystery there. How can three be one and one be three? And there's all kinds of illustrations we use, and frankly, a lot of those illustrations fail. Okay, maybe you've heard of ice, water, vapor. Okay, maybe you've used that. That's actually modality. That's, a, that's modalism. That's a heresy. Okay, um, uh, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of, you know, maybe the apple. I remember, you know, the apple. As a kid, one apple, but you have a seed and a core and a, and a peel. You know, they they all fall short at the end. Okay, uh, I've seen there's some pictures that that have, have have been developed throughout the centuries that kind of describe what the Bible teaches. Okay, but the Trinity is a beautiful doctrine that we that we believe because the Bible, God, a God that we can't fully um, wrap our minds around, has revealed Himself to us in this way, and it's a beautiful doctrine, but it blows our mind. It, truly, it's beyond the bandwidth of our human reason entirely. And so we take it by faith, okay? Now, the Bible's clear. We can, we can describe exactly what we mean, all right? 
Um, but so the doctrine of Trinity has, has created, you know, has, has cre- people have struggled with this. Um, well, people have also struggled with understanding Christ. So understand, remember, you have one God dwelling in three persons. Well, when we're talking about Jesus, we have one person. We call him the second person of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is Jesus, the Son. One person, two natures. You with me? God, one nature, three persons. The second person of the Godhead, Jesus. One person, two natures. You know what that does? It blows our mind too. Because we're thinking about a human who was also divine. And the more you think about it, you have to just worship in faith. Or you can be a skeptic. All right? The Bible's very clear, but this also blows the capacity of our mind. And that's why I hope you never yawn at this stuff. Oh, yeah, I know that. Really? Do you really know it? Do you really understand it? Do you really believe what you say you believe? Right? It should lead us to a knee, taking a knee and worship and say, you are so much greater, so much greater than the, the greatest human wisdom. Uh, uh, you, are, you, you, are, you are not just an anomaly. You are someone to worship. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for, for coming and living and, and breathing and, and showing us the way and giving yourself for us. So back in the day, there were actually quite a few folks who were, were saying that, that Jesus Christ was clearly, because they're reading their Bibles, the Son of God, but he could not have been fully human because it's not possible logically for God to be man. For some of the reasons that I already mentioned. You know, how can God need anything? How can God die? How can God increase in wisdom? And so Jesus must have just been a phantom. Now we don't, that, that's kind of faded today. There's not a whole lot of people who, there are some folks out there who believe this, but there's not many people who believe that anymore. Now there are a lot of folks who believe that Jesus Christ was fully man, but not truly God, right? I already mentioned our Jehovah's Witness friends, our, our Muslim friends, would say he's the greatest prophet, but not God. They would say that's blasphemous, okay? So this council sat down to talk about words like begotten. What does that mean? Does that mean God had a beginning? Jesus, does that mean Jesus had a beginning? And so they met to combat some of these heresies that denied the full deity or humanity of Christ. And so these are the first points of the Nicene Creed. And I hope as you hear this, you won't just hear dusty uh, old theological statements, but you'll worship, that you'll worship I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. Is that pretty clear? They, they really thought through their, their, their wording here. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Do you think they put some time in that statement? Bunch of heads together, probably a little bit of arguing going on. Who, for us men for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate. That's a fancy word. It means he became human. He he took on flesh. Became a real man. And was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. In other words, this happened in in history. Not just metaphorically, in real time and space history. 
he suffered and he was buried. And on the third day, he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. There it is, past, present. What is he doing right now? Future. Nicene Creed also talks about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And I believe that calls him the ghost. They meant spirit, uh, as we think of spirits. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, whom with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified and who spoke by the prophets. So what that means is all of this, word of God that God disclosed to us through human writers, through prophets, that was the Holy Spirit telling their souls, working through their minds and their mental agencies, telling us what we needed to know, what to write down. Now the Baptist faith and message has this to say about who God is. And it goes into more detail about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I won't take the time to read all of that. But this is a, a group of, of Christians who spent a lot of time as well, carefully crafting out um, terminology so that we can be clear in terms of what we believe, what we say we believe. There is one and only one living and true God. He is an intelligent, spiritual, and personal being. The creator, redeemer, preserver and ruler of the universe. God is infinite in holiness and all other perfections. God is all-powerful and all-knowing, and his perfect knowledge extends to all things, past, present, and future, including the future decisions of his free creatures. To him we owe the highest love, reverence, and obedience. Now, now this is the part about the Trinity. The eternal triune God reveals himself to us as Father Son, and Holy Spirit with personal, distinct attributes, but without division of nature, essence, or being. In other words, three in one. Now, sometimes as Christians, and maybe when your children ask you to explain the Trinity to them, or maybe you have a Muslim friend who asks you and says something like, hey, I, I understand math. How, how, does, how does three equal one? You, you might be tempted to think, okay, this doctrine of the Trinity, it's a liability. It's part of our package of systematic theology, but it's kind of a liability. It's kind of a hard one. You know, maybe with the doctrine of hell, I don't like, you know, that's uh, a hard one. Well, you know what, Let me, I just want to tell you that, that the doctrine of Trinity is beautiful. And, I, I, and I don't, we don't have time this, the, in this sermon to, to, to probe all of the applications to your life of the doctrine of the Trinity, but let me just mention two. The, the first would be the Trinity is the model of the perfect relationship, okay? So all human relationships can look to the Trinity, that is the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, as a model for how we should seek to interact with each other, okay? So understand this. There's what we call the ontological Trinity, okay? That's a big word. Ontology means essence or being, and so the ontological trinity means that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal in essence or in nature and in value. But there's what we call the economic trinity, how they, how they function, how the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit function. Okay? We read in the Bible that God the Son submits to God the Father. 
And the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, submits or is sent out by God the Father and God the Son. Okay, does that make sense? So they, 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 they work together in complementary fashion, but with different roles, but have in equal nature and equal value. Now, our society wants to define our value by our roles, okay? And so that's why, there's, that's why the idea of, uh, when we read in Ephesians, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, that's why that's so offensive. Because according to what our society says, if you have to show respect or deference to another person, it means they have greater value than you do, right? So there's all this talk about, you know, getting your voice back and, and getting your power. And usually that includes kind of destroying people in our society today. And let's unpack that a little more. Let's think about what our society is really saying. What it's saying is if you are, let's say you're a sanitation worker, you have less value than a doctor. That's what our society is saying. Because value comes from your role. That's not biblical. Does that make sense? You know where our value comes from as human beings? We've been designed in God's image. We are image bearers. That's our, our, our value. So look to the Trinity. This is why husbands and wives are both equal image bearers of God and have equal value before God and equal value in society, and yet they have different complementary God-given roles. And this is why we as, as Christians, I mean, think about us in this room, right? We all come from different backgrounds. We have varying degrees of education, um, different ethnicities, different roots, different jobs. But in the military, we have a military community here, so we can have officers and enlisted people calling each other brother or sister and not having to call each other sir in the pew. Does that make sense? Well, why? Look to the Trinity. Now, Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 that his people would be united as the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are united. And so here we have the model for relationships, for human relationships, and how God himself interacts with himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We also understand that God is content in himself. Now, sometimes we, we think when we, we read passages like John 3.16 uh, and others um, that, that you know, God loved the world, and he does, but that he needed us somehow. God was out there floating around in the cosmos or something like that, and, and he was lonely. And so he created the worlds, and on planet Earth he made humans in his image to relate with him. And that's true, he did. He, he made us for a relationship, but not because he needed us. God was eternally content in relationship with himself because we have three true personalities, three persons in harmony, in, in tr true joy together, not with any other need. He didn't create us out of need. He created us for his glory, and as I can best understand it, also because of his love, and love chooses objects. And so God created objects to love. Not because he needed that. He had himself. But because he's love, he decided to create a creation to interact with in, in loving relationship. And we know the rest of the story that, that sin got in the way and, and, and yet he didn't leave us spinning out of control. 
in our brokenness, he sent a savior. So God is the model, the Trinity is the model, the triune God of perfect relationship and he is content in himself. From, the, from, from eternity past, Jesus was both God and with God. And our final point is this, and this is verse three, that Jesus made all things with God. Verse three says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Now that last bit, there was not anything made that was made is a repetition to make sure that you get the point. All things were made through Jesus. Now I want you to wonder with me again. Let's take a journey of imagination and probe the mystery and the majesty of what we believe, the incarnation, the story of Christmas. Look with me in your mind's eye, if you will, at the baby Jesus, a true homo sapien baby who, like all other babies, have had needs. In order to survive, he needed to, he needed to nurse. He needed milk. He needed to be changed. Think about the humility of God for a moment, okay? Um, but also remember that John says that not only was he in the beginning with God, but that he, Jesus, is the creator of the universe. That was the creator of the universe right there. Now, is there some mystery? Yeah. When, when, when the baby Jesus held up his hand, did he think, wow, look at that thing? Or did he think, look at that amazing act of creation that I created? I don't know. I do know the Bible says that he learned and he grew in wisdom. So I'm, I'm thinking it was probably the former. There's mystery here. One writer put it this way, to, just to make it clear, though, that this Jesus created all things, that the man in the sandals that we love and read about created all things, okay? One writer put it this way, John chose a word that looks at each created thing individually. Jesus Christ made everything from the largest whale to the smallest amoeba. From the sunflower seed to the redwood tree, from the beautiful sunset to the tiny lightning bug, Jesus Christ designed and created all of it. Um, this isn't the only text that says Jesus is the creator. Re Revelation 4.11, which is when we look at the end and the summation and the worship, worthy are you, our Lord and God, talking to Jesus, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Jesus not only created all things, but he has, since the beginning of creation, held the cosmos together by the word of his power. So let's stop and think about that for a moment. All right? Um, not only was he laying in a, you know, some kind of a cradle, we know he started off in a, in a cow trough, right? An animal trough when he was first born. Um, not only was he the one who had created it all, as a little baby, Jesus is still somehow, mysteriously, holding the cosmos together, the very atomic structure of the universe by the word of his power. Now we, we live on a, on a beautiful blue planet called Earth that 
revolves around the sun, which is just an average-sized star, astronomers say. Um, they tell us that the average galaxy has about 100 billion stars. I mean, I, I, I can't even imagine that. But 100 billion with a B. And I'm not sure they really know what they're talking about. And this is the best measuring, but who is really, you know, count? did you count all those, you know? 100 billion stars. Now, Einstein, who was a whole lot smarter than me, but had a lot less knowledge than we have today, because basically the more they discover, the more, the bigger everything gets, right? But Einstein, back in his day, calculated that there are more than 10 octillion stars in space. So that is a 10 with 27 zeros behind it. I, I, again, I cannot fathom the bigness of that number, okay? Uh, I'm pretty sure that if we went down to Okaloosa Island and we counted every piece of sand, it wouldn't come close. Okay, um, 27 octillion. Um, that's Einstein's calculation, which was probably an underestimate. Jesus created all of that. And not only did he create all of that, as that baby dependent on his mother for life, like every other baby, Jesus was upholding all of that. The, the universe, sustaining it, holding it all together. And we see this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Did you get that? Creator, sustainer of the universe. The atomic structure, uh, the spiritual structure, the quantum structure, stuff we don't even understand or know about. He's holding all of that together. That's him. Hebrews 1, chapter two, uh, uh, verse 2 says, In these last days God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through him he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1:17 and in him all things hold together. Talking about Jesus Christ. One writer put it this way, he is the force that holds all things together from the smallest atom to the greatest galaxy. And that my friends, if you dwell on it is mind numbing. Jesus Christ created all that exists including the universe, this beautiful earth and you. And that means that he has ownership rights along with God the Father and God the Spirit. And he is worthy of our worship, my worship, and your worship. And that means that we need him. Jesus is the giver of physical and spiritual life. So are you trusting him today with yours? Are you trusting Jesus with your eternal soul? Are you resting in him? If you're not, I invite you this very day to call out to him in faith and to ask him to save you, to be your savior, to deliver you, and he will. He promises all who call in the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask you to help us believe what we believe. This Christmas season, Lord, I pray that you'd protect us from distractions. 
Lord, that, that our, our mind would be on the reason for this season, and that is the birth of Christ. God eternally passed, God the Son, come to become fully man, to show us the way, to die on a cross for our sins, to rise from the dead. And we look forward to his return. Lord, help us to ponder him, to worship him, and to speak of him to others, to our neighbors this Christmas season. And we, we pray in his awesome name. Amen. Well, we are going to move into a time of communion. And this is a time for us to spiritually commune with Christ and with our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. Okay, this is a time in which we, we take a, a little bit of, of, of um, grape juice, which represents the wine that Jesus drank with his disciples, okay, which represented the blood that he was about to spill on the cross. And we, we take a little wafer of bread that represents the bread, the unleavened bread that they ate in celebration of the Passover, which, which represented the body that, that was about to be just destroyed and ravaged and broken on the cross for our sins. So this is a holy time for Christians, um, but this is a time to not enter into lightly. And so if, if you're a Christian and you have some sin in your life that you have not confessed, and so uh, you've got an obstacle between you and God, we're going to take a few moments, and you can confess right now to the Lord. Right? The Bible says if we, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. So we're going to have a time, we're going to listen to a, uh, words of a song, feel free to sing it, but I want to encourage you to also um, to, to ponder and, ask the, and listen to the Holy Spirit should there be something in, in your heart that you need to confess to the Lord. Now, the Bible also talks about, Jesus talked about relationships. It may be that you have a truly broken relationship with another Christian. Jesus said, go repair that before you come to the altar. So that may be, there may be a good reason for you as a Christian to pass on communion today, and I want you to know we'll, we'll honor that. If you are not a Christian, if, if Jesus is not your Savior and your Lord, we really thank you for being with us today. Um, we're honored by your presence. I, I hope and pray that you will think about the words of this message that you've heard today. I hope even more that you will go and read the book of John and, and ask God to show you if Jesus is truly the way, the truth, and the life because he will show you, and he'll save you from your sins. But if you're not a Christian today, I would ask you not to take communion. This is a, a, this is a Christian um, uh, ordinance. This is a, a time only for believers. Um, we don't want you to, um, to eat or drink any condemnation on yourself. So just pass uh, on the elements, and we'll respect that as well. And, and I just want to also remind you that um, our, our deacons are going to come up. And let me go ahead and call you brothers, if you would, come on up here to serve. Um, as they serve, they're going to hand you one cup, but underneath that cup is a second cup that has your little piece of, of bread in it. Thank you.